a special on Radio Owl's Nest and this really is a special I've got a, I've got a guest coming that um, I'm very actually after all the years I've known this person it seems really quite exciting to have them on the show and there she is this is my manager Diane Poncher welcome Miss Poncher hello thank you it's glad uh, to be here <laughs> pretty, pretty amazing that we've been together for how long about 40 years. And it's still exciting for us to be sat looking at each other after 40 <laughs> years. Can you believe it? So we're going to do a really a fantastic special here. Um, I've always wanted to get Diane onto the radio show, but she said, nope, it's a cheap show. You don't pay me enough. I'm not going to do it. Uh, but yes, uh, this may turn into two shows. Um, I'm thrilled, actually, to get to some of the stories that Diana and I have shared in the music business. Um, and uh, so we're going to get off and running. I must I must admit, I have to say here, I do love this woman. I've been with Aww. her for... Um, uh, I'm just reading a piece of paper, I had to say that. Um, but, um, <laughs> Which I gave him. <laughs> we, um, we do go back a long time, don't we, Diane? How long have yeah. we been working together? Since we were children. Seems like. <laughs> how how many uh, how many years is it? Uh, well, forty years, I believe. Oh, it was nineteen. Oh. I think we met nineteen eighty one. Nineteen eighty one. I think it was eighty one. And did yeah. we, we met in in L A. Right? In L A. Um, you came here. I, I I remember we had a, a mutual friend, Joyce Moore, who was like my best friend in England when I lived there for you know a short time. And um, she used to send people to, people that were coming to America in the music business, she used to say, well, you must see Diane. Uh, she'll tell you, blah, blah, blah. She was a very sparky girl. Very sparky, yeah. and she yeah. knew everybody. And, uh, you know, you n never were at a loss of things to do when you had Joyce with you. So really, I just got to jump in there because I was working at Battery Studios on a Reckless Eric record all that time back then. Yeah. I bumped into Joyce and she said, uh, and I told her I was going to go to America and she said, well, when you go to America... You must see Diane. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, I'll meet any American women. I'll go for it. That sounds good <laughs> to me. Um, and uh, I actually came across and just with, with Brian Fair. No, at first it was with Willie White, a photographer, right? Or was it with yes, Brian? Yes, you were with Willie. With your, Willie. Your friend Will. And I know what, I just knocked on the door, and um, there you were. Well, actually, he was very professional, because he called from England first to set it up, and then I think he flew to Washington, where his parents were, and called me from there to sort of nail it down. Well, I'll be in L.A., blah, blah, blah. And uh, I knew exactly when to expect him, and he was, of course, dead on time, which he always is. Yeah, and uh, from me. I can remember. Think, uh, I think what was amazing is the moment that we met up. Um, I found out then that you were working with uh, Cavallo Ruffano Farnoli. I can't really say that name very well now. It sounds like right. Spaghettios. It sounds like come a mafia. They people. were they were thought of as the pasta triplets. <laughs> <laughs> but this management company, they uh, handled. Earth, Wind & Fire, Ray Parker, Little Feet, The Time, Weather Report. I mean, I'd walked into heaven. I mean, those were the Prince. artists. Those were, Prince, of course. And those were the artists you were working around yeah. at the time. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about um, working with uh, Cavallo, Ruffalo and Prince. 
Well, I mean, first working for Bob Cavallo was amazing. He was, uh, I think I learned a whole lot from him. He was just really great at getting to the heart of whatever anything was and uh, and dealing with that extremely well. But anyway, no, uh, I did Prince used to come in the office, right? He did, yeah. yeah. I, I didn't really get that involved with working with Prince. He had a, an associate manager, uh, Jamie Shoup, who really looked after him. And Steve Farnoli was the partner of the three managers who was mainly uh, Prince's guy. Um, but this, but but this management he, company was exploding at that time. Yes, right? yes. I mean, they had Earth, Wind & Fire, which were really doing extremely well. And uh, Weather Report was, yeah. was, you know, really, they were amazing. Anyway, um, so Prince was really coming into his own at that time. Um, he, every time he came into the office, with almost without fail, he would always stop at Mrs. Fields, I think it was, Mrs. Fields Cookies and bring cookies in for the people working in the office good press work <laughs> good like press work a, a big yeah. thing yeah. yeah and he was uh, a shy guy right quite very shy. shy he didn't say a lot and when he did he was very soft-spoken at least uh as i understand it until he knew you better but it, pretty much every time i ever saw him he was pretty soft-spoken but he 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 used to come in and my office was sort of just opposite the entrance you know, as you walk in the door, if you look straight and my door was open, you could see me usually standing at the tape machines because that's I remember <laughs> I remember that office very, very well. Yeah. Always yeah. making tape copies, yeah. as it happened mostly for you. <laughs> <laughs> that's when Dancing in Heaven was breaking. But, you know, we're yeah. moving at a speed here um, and we're going to come back to this time. But your dad uh, yeah. was a manager as well, right? Yeah. My dad was a manager since I can remember, I think he, he started, he, he had his main uh, business, but on the side, probably in the 50s, he started managing people. And he was like the go-to manager for all the um, musicians that came from Cuba. So he had virtually all the Cuban bands wow, in wow. like the 50s, 60s. Yeah. Um, he managed people like Eddie Cano and uh, Tito Puente wow. and people like that, you know. Um, and, then, all, and then he also, you know, my era as well, he, he, he did Donovan, right, as well? Yeah, round. I mean, he didn't do Donovan. He managed Donovan, right? That <laughs> didn't, didn't sound right. He didn't did it, do he? Donovan. <laughs> um, Ten years after, right? Yeah, Spooky Tooth. Uh, he found all these bands in England. He'd just go away to England, and he'd always come back with these records, and I'd go crazy. I love this. I love that. But I was in love with Donovan at the time. Yeah. And um, when he brought Donovan back, he actually uh, did a deal where in those days, it was not as small a world as it is now, as we all know, but... Um, he he was sort of the original person that brought people over groups over right, from England right, right. and managed with their managers yeah. their English managers and he would manage them in the United States and sort of set up their tours and you know because they didn't know as much about the market here so he would sort of and he was mixing with all the uh, heavyweights then and George Martin right George yeah. Martin yeah, and Beatles producer yeah, yeah. shall tell me um yeah. A lot of people that... And, sh and Shell tell me, he did the Kinks, right? 
Yes, he did. As a producer, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And a Jethro Tull, who I grew up with as well. I didn't grow up with him, but I loved the albums. And yeah. I, was, I, was, I thought yeah, you I told me he did, he did Jethro them, Tull. He, yeah. I think he did have something to do with them. Stevie Winwood? He met with Stevie Winwood, but I don't think they ever, he ever managed them, him. So really, here we go. It's in the family. It's in the blood. Yeah. Uh, your dad was doing that. So music. Music was the thing. When you were a little girl, I mean, I, you he know, managed a band called the Electric Prunes and the Astronauts. <laughs> that sounds like a Q-Phil kind of band. It was. They were the American bands that were crazy, semi happening at the time. Uh, and but music was obviously when you were a little girl was absolutely surrounding you. And, Always around music, and, and, you, and my dad was very gregarious he loved being around people and he had sort of an open door policy i remember so, your daddy was uh, that, yeah. yeah so yeah. as a little girl they uh, my parents always had parties and anybody could just stop by at any time so we always had people over at the house upstairs we had a room where uh you could put a dance floor there was a wet bar because wow. in those days everybody wow. had to have drinks and um Wow. Yeah, and there were always really interesting, unusual people. I remember there was this one woman, I was about eight years old, and she did my numerology or something and <laughs> said, you should always use your middle name. And, you know, I was eight and years old. And you've so got it. I, mean, when I you always told me do. Your, yeah, your middle name, I always thought, well, that's a strange uh, name for a lady. Yeah. But then I saw more of it. Sydney. Yeah, I see a lot of Sydney. But I used yeah. the initial. Yeah. And I think that was because that made quite an impression on me at right. such a young age. You well, know, so. you, you told me, I mean, I mean, we've been together for over 40 years, but you told me some things recently that I had no idea about, uh, that you were a dancer at three years old. Well, about three, three and a half, my mom put me into this dance class to uh, just for, you know, to make sure at three I, years old, I was a blob. I can't imagine moving. Uh, yeah, at three well, years you old. know, you do little things like yeah. you run down and you jump over a scarf right. to 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 music. So again, that sort of was another reinforcement of my relationship with music because yeah. everything was, um, you know, in dance, you count everything based on where you are in the bar or in the. Uh, piece of music and so you went on to be semi-pro right i did some semi-pro stuff yeah i really considered being a dancer and had all these you know silly you know romantic ideas about well i can't be a dancer for money because i love it you know <laughs> it's really stupid things. i've never done that as a songwriter <laughs> it's just as well that i didn't give me the because cash. i would yeah, yeah. oh you know yeah. it's a short career pretty much yeah but you know it, it when you when you think about it i grew up as well and my mother was a love to dance and that you, and and when you love to dance and rhythm becomes important to you the record player is always on Yes. And you're learning all the time, all the time without knowing it as a kid. Without knowing it, you're relating yeah. to things that are uh, become sub subconscious. And your dad was, as you just mentioned, was handling all those rhythmic uh, yes, Cuban bands. Very I much mean, so. that, you don't get more. That rhythmic, was very much know? a part of our lives. And my parents used to go to a, a club in LA called Ciro's. I think it was Ciro's, and. Uh, they danced. My dad was a really great dancer, and so mm. was my mom. And, and they were glamorous. They were glamorous. Very couple, glamorous. Yeah. My Hollywood, mother was. Hollywood. My mother looked a little bit. She bleached her hair. She was a blonde, um, but she uh, blonde hair, green eyes, and she looked a little like Marilyn Monroe. Oof. She was. No wonder really, your dad went. Like, yeah. That's my lady. She yeah. was really cute. Yeah. 
But um, they they were like the dance couple. You know, they they go there and dance regularly, and they'd have these things. Th- this, I'm finding this really interesting because when I came to America in the '80s, there was an '80s thing about Hollywood that I've sort of fell into and sort of thought, "This is it. It's Sunset Boulevard." And uh, but I'd imagine in your era, well, your mum and dad's era, it must have been really Hollywood. Must have been even. I think must be more even more glamorous because of the th- the stars and the, everybody was, dressed yeah. up. Everybody yeah. went out every night. They, you know. uh, my mother played golf in a, a tight skirt. What, in clubs? And a sweater. No. No, not dancing, I mean, but, right? You know, talk okay. about dressing up. They never wore jeans or pants. And look know. at me now. I'm wearing shorts, a T-shirt. <laughs> look at me. I no, got jeans well, you're on. looking quite glamorous, but I do look a, a slob. <laughs> Thank God this is a podcast. But about this dancing, because I know it's really important to you. It's always been that way all through your life, hasn't it? Yeah, only the dancing I did was like modern dance. It was it was Martha Graham technique, so it was like like contemporary ballet, not not ballroom dancing, that kind of thing. Right. Just just to I, I, when I play Diane, sometimes some of my crazy instrumentals, she instantly sees that as a as a, a, a modern dance, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Quite a few of the things you've done, I've thought that would be a great piece to, you know, choreograph a, a dance. And, I, and there to. I am trying to play her the song to say, what do you think about <laughs> it? And she's all over the place, just dancing all around the room, <laughs> up, 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 up the side of the walls. And I go, oh, that must be modern dance. That must be modern dance. But, uh, you know, that, that what I'm trying to get to here is that your f- whole family, the, I mean, when you grew up, as we go through the story, you, music must have been really circulating around it, you because you, you had a brother... Um, that also met with the Beatles. Yes, he did, because of the, some of the people that my father knew that he did business with in England. Steve, right? Steve is your brother. Steve. Uh, he and his best friend at the time, Mike Berry, um, Gene Berry's son, was uh, were going on a trip between uh, high school and college. They went on a trip for the summer uh, to England and, of course, met up with some of my dad's friends, and they somehow... Uh, ended up in a um, on a set with the Beatles. You know, they were doing some show or something. I, I actually saw a, a photograph of uh, the yeah. Beatles, Beatles with your brother. I think in Abbey Road. Uh, well, I think it was on that set wherever they were, yeah. and they, and uh, there were a series of photos. One was a brilliant photo of my brother and Mike and all all for the Beatles. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like the 60s, you know. I that. think when I when I met you, I came in and you had a piano in the house. Yeah. Uh, so that meant a big thing to me because I was still writing songs. And I think on the piano there was a picture of your brother with the Beatles. Yes. And I thought, I've come to the right house. Yeah, yeah. It was an amazing picture. Very 60s. You know, they had the haircuts and the long sideburns. And they all had the pants that were, you know, skinny pants, yeah. not jeans. And your da- uh, and your brother was a good. Uh, he was a very good pianist as well. Good player, wasn't he? he? Yeah, my yeah. brother and I both took piano lessons from the time we were very young. I think I was five years old when I started, mm-hmm. and so he played. He played better than me. And um, so you're dancing when you're three. You're playing piano at five. Yeah. I didn't even know I was alive until I was 15 or something, you know. <laughs> I, I, I've got it. But this look a, what happened. What happened to me Oh, yeah, I just took off. You ended up doing it. Yeah, I, I took didn't. off at the age of 15. It all happened from then on. <laughs> Your career was over by six. Absolutely. Uh, this is bringing us into a place where we have to play some music because it just seems like the right time. As I just said to you, Diane had a piano in her house. I was yeah. in L.A. and I was trying to... I was taking my songs around to record companies. I'd gone to Planet Records where they were looking for... Richard Perry, the producer, was looking for the Pointer Sisters to record.
record songs and I played them a demo uh, that I'd written called How I Miss You with uh, Brian Fairweather. And um, the producer, Perry, said, I think this is, has great potential for the Pointer Sisters, but I want you to change it and to rearrange it and to just expand it. And uh, I, pl I went to Diane's house and I used her piano to uh, write this song, How I Missed You. Can you remember this song right now? I totally remember that day. So we're going to play you the demo. It's a really, really raw demo that came from Battery Studios uh, right back when uh, we started. And uh, a great session singer called uh, Stevie Lang is singing it. So here we are, How I Miss You.
boy, that brought back some memories, didn't it? Absolutely. You know, it's analog recording back there. Twenty, I think it was sixteen track back in uh, Battery, and I was I was um, bringing these songs across to LA, and um, this was one of the first songs I was set, you know playing to people, and I remember. You were you, you sat next to me on the piano as I was trying to arrange it, and I think that was when you realised I was a genius, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it happens. It, it absolutely happens. But I think, you know, just get, we're trying to get to the nitty-gritty of this, but I think we connected at that point, didn't we? We did, yeah. That's when I realised there was more to you than this, This, you know, you were very funny at the time, and, you know. Not uh, now, right? At the time, I'm sorry. At the time, as well. <laughs> <laughs> You're still funny. Um, but, you know, that was your personality. But there was another part of you, a deeper uh, edge, and that's when I started paying more attention. Is that when I played uh, Dancing in Heaven to you? Is that not uh, that you happened? Play, not on the piano, but no, I, no. I, yes, you yeah. had played Dancing in Heaven, and I followed it up for a long time Which after Which was that. our first single on Jive Records, yeah. and it uh, didn't happen anywhere but in L.A., right? Right, and it hadn't happened really yet when you played it to me, but it was starting to happen right after that a lot that's right and when you went back to england i used to send you you know i'd try and ca- it was being played so much on the radio and all yeah. the stations and so i'd try and record it on uh, you know as it happened yeah. one station after that i'd hit it I'd, I'd record and then i'd hit the button and change yes. it to another station it would be playing on there and then i'd yeah. hit another button on a different station would playing there all at the same time and that's how much it was being played and then send you that recording to give you that's an idea. right because i went yeah. back to uh, you know back to london and we and diane would send me reports of how dancing in heaven was doing and um it became a successful record, like top ten in Los Angeles. And Diane was also sending me demos of the of the top writers that were working uh, with Earth, Wind, and Fire. So we were hearing great writers like John Lind, and uh, so I was getting an education of what you know uh, Diane was seeing with all the great writers. But also she was sending me music like Mexican Radio by Wall of Voodoo. Um, and uh, I could get a sense that L.A. was in tune with what Q-Feel was. It was the beginning of the New Age music, wasn't this it? This is me at that. Yes, totally. I mean, two things here. Uh, first of all, I had been pretty kind of getting bored, uh, you know, a little bit numb about the music scene until this time everything was starting to change. And it was very exciting because the sound was changing. It was a new, a new approach to the market to mm-hmm. music yeah. to what yeah. was what was what people were getting a, a excited revolution about. In a, in a it way. was yeah. and um that was sort of re-inspiring me or re-igniting my my excitement about music yes um yeah. and so you came right at that time and and i found that uh was part of that whole excitement and i got very enthusiastic about your stuff i remember you know, I talked to you earlier about standing in that room with the tape machine yeah. at the office. Yeah. yeah, and I used to put tapes together. I remember one. You were a tape. secret agent for Q. <laughs> I really was. That's what you were. You were break. And I'm, I'm going to jump straight forward here as Diane played "Dancing in Heaven" to Maurice White of Earth, Wind, and Fire, who was often in the office. And demos. I played some yeah. of your rough demos to him too. And she survived. 
to yes. tell the story. And she would report to me and Brian, and my partner in London, and say that we were getting favourable reports from these people we worshipped, which was, you know, Little Feet and Maurice White and Earth, Wind & Fire. Earth, Wind & Fire were, uh, were the band for me. So, you know, Diane was sort of on the inside of the government at that time for me. <laughs> and uh, she would give us such optimistic reports yeah. that uh, Maurice White was interested in us. You know, um, we'll, go, we'll talk about that a little bit later on. But... Um, uh, jumping forward and again, John Lind, and John Lynn, who was a great writer, wrote yeah. Boogie Wonderland, and uh, Diane eventually got me with him and um, American writers so that I could get an education here. So that was all spinning off of, of just meeting Diane at that point, and she became very instrumental at um, getting my music to a lot of people in LA. But here we are back in England with Diane telling us what we're do well, how well it's doing in America while well, our record company is not really responding to that and for some reason we get into the top 10 uh, well into the Eurovision Song Contest contest, and we didn't want to do it at first we thought this is stupid but I'd fallen in love with a band called Tubes and I thought if we do it like the Tubes it will be different uh, on TV and I thought Diane's American. This is so fantastic. Diane's an American. You are American, right? <laughs> yeah. Last time I checked. Yeah. So I, I said, come across Diane to the BBC when we're doing Eurovision, and <laughs> and we 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 Im immediately pretended that Diane was our American manager from Cavallo, Ruffalo, Fagnoli, the Mafia Kings, and you should see how our record company looked upon us. They're like, how the f did they do this? <laughs> yeah. Can you remember the Eurovision? I totally remember. <laughs> And, and you had How Steve. could you forget? Yeah. What was his name? Steve. Steve Howard. Steve Howard. And he was very respectful with yeah. me. And I thought, oh, it's because he thinks I'm, you know, with Cavallo, Ruffalo, and Farnoli and all that stuff. And that you, he, they, he would be shot and, and his body would be thrown off London Bridge if he did not give us what we yeah. wanted. <laughs> yeah. It was like you knew that he thought this might be important. It was so, you know, it was so vibey. Yeah. Like we could say, here's our American manager. Yeah. You know, everybody's like, I'm from America. She's flown across for the band. Uh, it was it was a, such a, a a wonderful time. We didn't do anything any good in Eurovision, but if you look at the YouTube videos, you can see that Diane helped us uh, get all this American uh, paraphernalia to wear, and my father... Oh, and the masks. Masks and British aerospace, my father. We just decided to be an American band yeah. on Eurovision, and that's, uh, that's quite unusual. But Dancing in Heaven was even though we didn't do well on Eurovision, that, back in America... It was a ticket. It was beginning to really happen. Yeah. Right? I mean, dancing... You, we, it, we, like I said, it was playing on all the stations. Yeah. You, you, you could go through every station I had set. Yes. And, um, you know, at one time or another, it would be playing at the same time at different stages of the record. You'd just keep hitting the buttons. That's right. And, uh, and of course, Diane, Diane was making Bob Cavallo aware of Brian and myself as writers, Always. as writers. Yeah. And uh, to make a long story short, which it won't be, it'll be a long story. He was getting this. ready to sign you. Yeah, he was going to sign us as uh, you know, the next uh, Tilbrook and Taylor, the next Holland Dozier in Holland. And he had an idea that we should be doing Broadway. So what? How Diane <laughs> manipulated this? I'll never know. But I got I just to say something exciting here. Was we were we were breaking through with you know the. Cavallo and the, the biggest management really in LA, Diane got us to go to a concert where Prince and The Time were, were playing and Brian and I were in the front row and Bob Cavallo was look, you know, interested in signing us because a lot of the white bands and the rock bands, they didn't have that. And it was like, you know, big country was breaking and uh, we, we seemed to be maybe that ticket for Cavallo. He was going to sign us as writers and a band. 
And I remember um, sitting there watching Prince and the Time and thinking, my God, we can't compete with this. <laughs> it scared the shit out of me and Brian because they were so good. Yeah. And although Diane was saying, you know, you, you have a special thing yourself, Brian and I thought if we signed to Cavallo, it, we'd get lost because we can't compete with such standards. You know. I remember that was your big concern. That was your hesitation. And I said, don't worry. By the time, you know, Bob will let me sign, let you sign a, a key, a key man clause with me. That's and so right. I'll be able yeah. to look after you. That's right. And by the time I got finished explaining to you what a key man clause was, you were saying, well, why don't you manage us? That's right. I mean, that's, that's that when we have that, that fun. You get, you know, when you get reminded of these things, it's incredible that yeah. you just go, yes, let's do this. Yeah. And even you just said, well, yes. we were okay. young. Yeah, you right. could do that's anything. Right. That's right. Yeah. And, uh, I remember, you know, again, that Diane did leave Cavallo on good terms. And Bob... I went and talked to Bob about yeah. it and said, do you think I can do this, Bob? And mm. and I was very concerned because we were in the middle of renegotiating your publishing deal with with uh, uh, Zamba. I've got to jump in here as well. This is another thing that Diane is incredible at, is contracts, is because Brian and I had signed to Zamba, Clive Calder, Ralph Simon, and our publishing deal was as bad as what you could get with, the, like, the police had. And Diane just read the contract one day and said you've got to get out of this and, yeah. uh, which she eventually did do for us yeah yeah um, it was a terrible contract we thought it was okay because we got 15 pounds a week for a while but diane said nobody should sign this you know, yeah contract yeah it was it was definitely in favor of them all the way through and and uh, so minimal for you it just seemed terrible to me um yeah, I discovered that somewhere along the line. I can't remember where. Every contract we've ever done. I it mean, was all the top lawyers and I've always in LA. been yeah. into language. And, um, yeah, I can't reiterate enough that yeah. to the top lawyers that we met in LA all through my career is they would uh, always talk to Diane on the same terms and wait to hear what she said about it. So very <laughs> lucky to find somebody who could understand uh, what was written on those pieces of paper that we signed all that time ago. And again, here we go where Diane is now beginning beginning to uh, manage uh, uh, Brian and myself um, away from Cavalla Ruffalo. We've, we decided to be just a, a, a little village concern and we would break through ourselves. And uh, we basically worked from your house, didn't we? We did, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, we stayed at your house for quite a long time. That's right, Yeah. you and Brian. And um, we had uh, an answer machine and... <laughs> yeah. That thing just never stopped. If we if we weren't there, and then he blew up with. Being uh, we'd come back yeah. and there'd be so many messages. It would be full with messages, yeah. and I remember the outgoing message. We'd always have really f a lot of fun. Mainly, it was you like and Monty Brian. Python. Yeah, yeah, did yeah. these Monty yeah. Python outgoing messages, which are crazy. Um, so here we were, a cue feel is breaking with Dancing in Heaven on the radio. Brian has come across to America with me. We're just staying with Diane, and we're going to every record company there is in L.A. playing all our demos. And we had the calling card of Dancing in Heaven. As Diane said, we would, we would re return home after uh, seeing about six record companies, and we'd have 95 to 100 calls on the yeah, phone saying, ridiculous. we want everything you've ever written. So it was an, a magical time, magical time. It was, and that was like the first year that I was mm. not working for, you know, big company. Yeah, you were um, very brave to do that. I it suppose, was, as it you scary. say, we're young and we all take chances. It was scary, we? but, you know, I believed in you. and you And uh, as you say, we're young. If it didn't work out, you could always find something else 
uh, that would work. But, um, yeah, no, it, it just, everything seemed to fall into place. Mm-hmm. It was the right time. And Diane's living room became a place where I would put a Jupiter 8 keyboard because yeah. uh, I had to keep writing. And um, we'll get to that again a little bit later. But everything that Brian and I did was based from Diane's living room when we were kipping on the floor. And uh, everything was going to start from there. I didn't have a green card yet, which Diane helped me get so I could stay in the country. Yeah. And um, we were just using Diane's house as our base and using uh, hire a wreck um, Car, car, right. cars rent a wreck. wreck that nearly blew up every time you drove them for about ten dollars and if the radio was good we would hire it and then we would drive to everybody we made so many friends at that time so we're going to get more into where we are now i, I just want to say that, <clears throat> that you didn't just go around and have fun and 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 see all the all the anr people right I remember you took copious notes uh, yes. about everything, what they said. You took it seriously. I've still got those books. Yeah. Have you? Yeah. That's that's great. Yes, Brian and I, and I'd done this all through my life. Even before I met Diane, I'd, I'd studied all the American magazines and written down all the record companies' addresses in New York, Nashville, and L.A., who the A&R men were and what artists they did. So if I went to Planet Records, I knew the artists they had. If I went uh, to CBS, I'd know who they'd have. And, and Brian and I would choose the right songs to play to those A&R men, and we would take notes about who, what the A&R men were like, you know right. what they wore, uh, what why they chose the coloured socks. We thought this Some all of the meant comments something. They made that, yes, that the comments would be yeah. important. <coughs> we made great friends at that time. Yeah, uh, it was a you know you can't really uh, reiterate how we we fundamentally uh, had a very special couple of years where we were the English writers uh, while Tom Dolby was breaking, while the Thompson tunes were breaking, while Ultravox were breaking, while the music was changing. We were in town. At that time. Right. And this is a big element, I think, about what set you apart is is you were always fully prepared. And if anybody brought anything up music related, yeah. you could just go on and on about it. You, yeah. wh- Whatever it was, whatever band it was, whatever yeah. type of music, you knew you had done your homework and you, you, you it was obvious that you were totally dedicated to it. <coughs> Recently, I was just talking to Brian about that and, I'm, and he was saying, oh, you, you had such a knowledge of the records yes, and the re- exactly. I'd, I'd studied them all through my life with my vinyl albums so that when I met these people, I sometimes knew a little bit more than what they did about what the artists they had and the way the artists should I go. I think it impressed a lot of people. Yeah. I, I remember being impressed by it. My biggest thing with you was that, that your determination and your you were you were definitely with your the way you were and how serious you took it um without seeming like a serious guy uh it it was a great combination yeah. and yeah. i just knew that no matter what a you had potential but but b you there was no doubt in my mind that you were going to be successful now i i always felt like if i set up another a new collaboration i was going to get something from it and come home at the end of the day with brian and we'd, we could report that we had a couple of songs on hold or something yeah. um i do uh, remember uh, you were handling uh, one of our heroes at that time ray parker who had the band um radio and we again me and brian we grew up in london loving jack and jill and all these hits and you were you know you were handling ray parker and within two weeks of us being in la um, you got us to go across to Ray Parker's studio, American Studios in the Valley, um, and meet him. Yeah, well, I was like Ray's person, key person. And um, Ray, Ray was and is 
just an incredibly nice guy, very easygoing, nice guy. And it just worked out, and he was he was totally open to it. And, and uh, yeah, you we set it up, I guess, that you met Ray, uh, yeah, and yeah. he was in the middle of doing Ghostbusters. That's, <laughs> I mean, we, we went to meet Ray Parker, and, of course, you know, he's the Stevie Wonder's session guitarist, and he had this wonderful history. Again, a great teamwork. Me and Brian, as a team, were, were um, good together. We could ha- help ourselves into situations but ray as diane said he had his own studio we went in we had a great chat with him we played him some demos which i think diane may have played him some stuff and he instantly said do you want to play on a track now we were like yes and it was ghostbusters i mean on the, exactly that day and then and he says do you have any any equipment yes brian had his guitar at the back of the back of the car we used to carry and, I, used to, and I had little synthesizers we were never without our you gear had that casio, right? i had a casio keyboard and we went in and um you know you probably find know more about the story ghostbusters but we played on ghostbusters i played keyboards um and brian played guitar and it wasn't we didn't really know what we were doing we just uh, ray took us into his office and played us a few ideas and we were modern to him and we were talking about Owner of a Lonely Heart by Yes and the kind of music that he liked. Lucky again, if you think about it, writers meeting with American writers that are intrigued by the new technology. And, of course, he loved Diane. He'd been with Diane for all these years, so he trusted you, didn't he? I guess he did, yeah. And uh, we did Ghostbusters. And I remember driving back to Diane, and uh, it wasn't really uh, all finished at that point, so we weren't sure what we were doing. And I remember saying to Diane, "Oh, we, Ray was fantastic, and we we actually played on a track with him. It was crap. <laughs> <laughs> I wish it was a better song." Little, little did I know, in three weeks' time, it was number one. It was very quick. Yeah, very quick. And uh, Ray sent us a. I think Ray was under pressure to get something. Yeah, done. yeah. yeah. We, di- we didn't hear all the. We we heard the. Ch- I think Brian said we actually sang there you know who are you gonna call ghostbusters and we thought we want to be on jack and jill or something funky and yet we're on this kind of pop silly thing but over the years i realized it was a that's what ray was brilliant at he was a great mixture of understanding pop uh, radio and um you know it was what a start because ray sent us a platinum album and we'd only been in la for a very short time so the encouragement was just great no but he just thought of that so yeah sweetheart sweetheart and what a way to start because we we within a very short time found us the 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 freedom of american i mean i've got to say this um in london it was all a bit uptight and uh, you only had a few hours in the studio and you know the, the could you get in to see people in la and the American way to me and Brian was it was very open. And everybody thought you could do it. Yeah. You know, even when I met you, Diane, I just felt like uh, the world is your oyster. If you're good, you'll be able to do it. Nothing's oh, yeah. going to slow you down. I mean, that was the American way to us. I, I, you know, I saw a little bit of that from, from another point of view. When I came back, I was just talking to you uh, about this the other day. When I came back from living in England for you know, a little over a year, um, I thought about L.A. as like everything is just so much easier mm-hmm. there. Why yeah. don't I just go back? Uh, let's let's go back a little bit, step back here, because England, before, yeah. I, before I met you, yeah. you were working in, in, uh, in, in England with record companies, right? Yeah, I worked for... Before um, we met. Yeah, I worked for one of my father's uh, associates who was a concert promoter. Uh, I can't think of his name, 
I've lost my memory of his name. Well, we are old. We are old. <laughs> Certain it. things are going to get lost. That's it. Uh, you know, it was <laughs> embedded in my brain for a long time. But, I mean, he was the guy responsible for all the country market, um, you know, uh, festivals in England and uh, some of the European countries. And uh, I worked for him for a while. That was a promoter. And then I uh, worked for Motown. Motown International. Oh, Motown in England. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It was great. And how long were you? Are you CBS and Motown, right? CBS when I, when I, before I moved so to So that's the 90, 1970s when I was playing in bands and learning my trade as a bass player. You were actually in London with record companies. Mid, from the mid-70s to the late-70s. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, uh, I can't, you know, I, I think I... Brian and I went into Motown uh, offices in London once in the 80s and we even by just seeing the sign Motown on, yeah. on the door we just thought oh this is it we yeah. just got to walk through now you know it's time to play some music again I think we're looking about 36 minutes into this show um, <laughs> and uh, actually we're going to play a song which we both thought would be good to play now because um, uh, it's a song called I Pretend and uh, Kim Carnes was one of the first people that we actually worked with in America and of course we grew up on Betty Davis Eyes and when we went to EMI America uh, record Capital company uh, well she was I think she was on EMI America when we went in to meet uh, oh, Ga right. Gary Gersh that's right and uh, we've, we've told the story before we played him some demos and uh, he got Kim Carnes on the phone while we were there this is the American way and we played the song down the phone and she said let me talk to them and we had a chat and she said come on over to the studio let's cut I thought god we've just done Ghostbusters <laughs> <laughs> and now it's like, come over and do our album. I thought, this is fantastic. This is the LA way. And one of the songs that we that she recorded with us, I think, um, is a song called, yeah, obviously, I, I Pretend. And uh, yeah. this means a bit to you as well, doesn't it, I Pretend? Yeah, well, I mean, only because... It sticks in our minds. It somehow. totally does. It was, it was, you know, from the first step, right through to the record and then yeah. the charts, you know. That, that and was it, it was our first American top. 10 in a way because i think it got in the top five or top 10 ac yeah uh, she cut another one of our songs um which was invisible hands and that actually uh went it was a cute song that went top 40 so she was great but i pretend just has some really good memories um we actually went to the studio and i we sang backgrounds on the on her actual record but here is the demo uh, and Diane always loved this demo. Uh, again, we did it at Battery, and it was again, it was Stevie Lang that sung the song for us, a beautiful session singer. It's just a, a 16 track analogue, but I thought it would be really great to play. The, let's play the demo, shall we, Diane? Yeah, let's do it. I pretend. <laughs>
can hear you know i remember i played that at planet records as well because you can hear it's got that pointer sisters groove it's that time when mock and madonna was playing those chords you know uh, it was swinging all the time and uh i pretend that you're, it, it, i could definitely hear the pointer sisters yeah there's it. a little more sophistication in that than some of the ones some yeah. of the demos you had up to that absolutely point. I, I think that's good that we played that because i think we, we had a turning point there in the way we were writing as well Diane had to put up with listening to all the songs that we'd written before we met her, which were awful. And she had to listen to them all and go like, yeah, yeah, this is showing potential. No, no, yeah, yeah. So I pretend had that uh, that taste. And, and, and we're leading on now to where we're in L.A. and people are beginning to record our songs. Yes, a lot. And uh, we were um, being put forward to Brian and myself to write with lots of different people. And uh, the cuts were coming. And then I started to write with Bernie Taupin. And uh, that was a special time. I mean, uh, Elton John was very important to me. Uh, what can you remember about um, me meeting Bernie and me sort of linking in with Bernie Taupin? Well, I do remember that <coughs> Bob Scorro was sort of the, the guy that instrumented. It, that that actually made it happen. A and R man at Chapel. He he. Well, he was a publisher. Publisher, that's at, right. At yeah. uh, Chapel Music, and um, yeah, he he said that Bernie he wanted to give Bernie some new juice, I guess. Yeah. And you yeah. were like the new kid in town, so yeah. uh, of course you jumped at the chance. And Bernie, it turned out, was interested as well. And I, you guys just hit it off. I mean, you know, I've never asked you this, really, Diane. But uh, I was with Bernie for quite a while. Once we connected, yeah, um, I stayed really sort of consistently working with him, didn't I? Yeah, you did. You worked with him, and you you 
were friends. You, you, we, yeah, we became I good know, friends. We went over to his house a few times. Yeah. He had parties, and you were always My mum and dad met him, yeah. and uh, I had a birthday he party. He was a part of our life. Yeah, uh, at, a, at his house. I, I was always over there, yeah. and uh, we got very close, uh, and we, we really did, enjoyed each other's company. He it was like an era. An era, yeah. It was the right time. Yeah. And he um, and I respected him so much yeah. for the work. So um, I think uh, we built the city uh, and these dreams. The first two lyrics he sent me were the first demos I did. And then after that, I think he was impressed enough for us to go on. I do remember that he threw me a birthday party and I said, yes. whatever you do, whatever you do, do not play. Because he was a bit of a lad. Play any games with me with strippers. Of course, within 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah. My mum and dad were there, and I had a lap dancer all over my groin. And, I, and Bernie just stood there in one of his beautiful suits, laughing his head off yeah. while I sweated. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I was always around Bernie at that time, and I felt like it was a very, very important uh, moment for me. Um, and again, I, th I don't think we need to hang around here, because we may as well play another very, very special song in my career at that point. Yeah. Uh, of course, Diane would always hear what I was writing first before anybody else. So Bernie sent me the lyrics to We Built the City. I was uh, at Crescent Heights, a different little house right. at that time I'd hired, and I had a Fostex 8-track. And, of course, I'd tell Diane what the lyrics were, and uh, then I would write the song and play it to her first, right? You heard We Built the City before anybody oh, else. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard that stuff while you were writing it. We'd pl sometimes you'd play me things down the phone. Oh, yeah, that was a big, big thing, wasn't yeah. it? If you got excited about it, you wouldn't worry about it. You just say, got, got to hear the melody of this. Yeah. Can you remember hearing the demo of We Built the City for the first time? To tell you the truth, I do vaguely, but I, I don't remember it like you think mm -hmm. I should, you know, mm -hmm. uh, because we didn't know how, how big it was going to be at the time. It was yeah. another one of your demos. But what was special is that it was one of the first things you did with Bernie. Yeah. You were you were a little uh, anxious about how he was going to respond to sure. what you sure. what you came up with. It's not very good that your manager can't remember listening to one of the biggest songs ever made. Uh, so why don't I remind you, Diane, uh, of We Built This City. Here is the original <laughs> demo of We Built This City.
Can you remember it now? Can you remember that? <laughs> I always remember the song, Duh. Her, her eyes are glazed. I mean, it's hard to you, believe this. You asked me if I remembered the moment Look, when you your played phone, it. Your phone is telling you that I wrote it here. <laughs> <laughs> she had to do a Wikipedia to find out if I was involved with that song. I have to tell you that Martin doesn't remember half the songs he's written. That's true. And if he says the title, I can sing it to him. That's most of it. absolutely true. So. I, I, I'm no good at remembering my melodies. I always check if I'm writing an album that if I can remember one or two of the choruses, I, I think that's strong. But Diane, I can just mention a title to her and she can sing it. She's got a great, great sense of melody. Also, I think she's got a great ear for what is strong uh, uh, in my in everything I write uh, uh, and weak. So we'll get to that later. But playing We Built This City then was fun uh, hearing that. And uh, God, the, the story behind that, um, Marconi plays the mamba. That was like a revolution, wasn't it? Yeah, there's people always complaining or t- saying, what is it, mambo the dance or mamba that's a snake? I mean, um, uh, like the controversy. That's right. And when I had, to, you know, I sang it from just looking at his lyrics, which he faxed to me. But you've got an idea uh, on, on if it's mambo or mambo or what happened. Well, I think you know when you look at the lyrics, I think Marconi plays the mambo. I think it's the dance, and 
I don't remember exactly, but I I think one of two things might have happened. Either um, Bernie, either Bernie misspelled it, and nobody would guess that because he's yeah. the lyricist that we respected yeah, so much. Right, right. Or um, it was a typo, which could have been me because I always used to type up the lyrics. That's right. I would. That's right. I would send the lyrics to Diane. I say uh, print them up bigger for me, yeah, so that I can put the read them and sing them at the same time. Or you miss uh sang it mispronounced it but we looked at re- recently this was written about in some big magazines and we yeah. looked at the original lyric sheet didn't yeah, we yeah that's right and, and he spelled it right did he was it mambo or mambo i think it was i think he spelled oh now i can't remember my god <laughs> here we go again mambo or mambo i don't really give a shit it went number one i'm quite happy with that and actually i thought you know marconi plays the mambo i thought well he he's a bloke who uh started radio you know uh the first well, uh, marconi is and yeah. mambo was a very popular dance at the time yes and, so. and I, I have to mention here this is the songwriter speaking is that when elton said this as well is that when i used to get lyrics from bernie i didn't really really care what it meant i just thought these are good yeah. and i wanted to impress him and just like elton says you realize later what the song is about as you take it in because yeah. you just you know I, it's a very natural thing for me which lo- is not for a lot of writers that they, uh, they bernie even said can you write to lyrics that are just given to you and i just went at it like a, a duck into water i just always said his lyrics were very rhythmic oh, they, they, he, so, yes he, he wrote from a ryth- rhythmical place and um you know what? What are you going to do when you have when you write with Bernie Taupin and, and uh, you know call him on the first song and say I'm not happy with this, Bern. I think you could do a better job. Now you're not going to do that. <laughs> you know it's great, and I can tell you now that on, I've still got folders upstairs, remember, yeah. of all yeah. his lyrics, and we yeah. still got them. And um, you, he never repeated himself. Yeah. I mean, most writers I worked with, you could see that they had a formula, and you'd see it come around and around. But Bernie was very. Very, very original. original. And I grew up with Tumbleweed Connection and um, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. So I could see in these lyrics. And, of course, we built the city. I must say this again. Uh, Diane typed them up for me. And as I looked at them early on, I thought they were quite modern lyrics. Yeah. You know, I came from Q-Phil. He'd heard the Q-Phil record. We were new wave artists. He was trying to get with younger, uh, obviously, younger mu- musicians at that point. And I think we built the city is not obviously an Elton lyric. I think there's yeah. some modern a- yeah, a- elements to, to me it. Too. Yeah, and and it's it's interesting because the a listener, when I like when I listen to songs. Sometimes what they mean, yeah, lyrically dawns yeah. on me. Yeah, later I first get the music. Yeah, um, although they say females can't hear the lyrics better than that's what they men. say. But yeah. I've always been about the music. That was yeah. my experience growing up and everything. Yeah. The music first. Yeah. Um, you could find out later that the lyrics are really stupid, but I love that song. You know? Yeah, yeah. And, of course, let's say at that point as well, Diane and I would always find ourselves in Tower Records and record shops. Every weekend, if we weren't sure what we, what we wanted to do, we'd head to the record store and spend hours in there and coming back with tons of albums. It was like we were very... In- I was very in tune with what was happening with radio at that You'd time. You'd need help carrying all the things. Oh, my God, yeah. I was yeah. an addict for addict. And... Um, but you were very, very, very tuned into radio yeah. because you'd make Diane would, Diane would suddenly say, check this out. And she still does it to me now. She says she'll send me something, uh, you know, by YouTube and say, check this out. And it's always something very, very um, modern, sparky or I don't I always thought that Diane never had a, um, a, 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 
she she could allow all styles to affect her. If it was a good song, yeah. if it was a commercial song, and it really got her touched her, uh, even though I might have like, well, that's not Toto, that's not Boss Skaggs, or that's not uh, Genesis. She would she wouldn't care about that. She was always into no, the, if it, the if song. It, if it got me or caught my imagination or made me want to move or just captured something, yeah. And it's still the same yeah. today, you know. It is. I, I've I've got a little bit set in my ways, and and I, Diane will send me stuff, and I'll go like, "How the hell is she in tune with this?" And I don't tend to listen to radio as much as I should these days, but Diane still does, which is great for any you know for your manager to keep you on on. on. Every time I'm in my car, it's yeah. the radio. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, and and during that uh, era, Tower Records, which we don't have anymore. Yeah. In L.A. and Sunset Boulevard was the place to go. Yeah. You'd see John Belushi in there. You'd see Elton in there. You'd see us all in there. Yeah. And I literally would spend a whole afternoon in there. Yeah. And then I'd come home, listen to it all, study it, and try and bring it into the new music I was writing. Absolutely. You tr- you were always one to combine things. Like this is this guy meeting that group or, you yeah. know, yesterday this meeting the future. Yeah, a, mel- yeah. a melting pot. Yeah. In fact, uh, this takes us on to after, uh, working with Bernie. I did do Bernie's solo record, and we did a lot of stuff together. Starship were cutting a lot of our songs, and we were having a lot of cuts. Uh, and it was a thrill to work on Bernie's solo album. First time yeah. I'd really produced in L.A. of any consequence. And that led on to um, working with Go West. And yeah. um, we worked on, oh, I wrote with the Go West lads, King of Wishful Thinking, and Faithful, and had a really great period with them. What can you remember about Go West, Diane? Well, I, I distinctly, you were living on Crescent Heights, and yeah. I distinctly remember you telling me about this English band that you thought were great called Go West. I'd never heard of them. And, um, like, very soon thereafter, this whole thing came up with you working with Go West. I can't remember how that happened, actually, who who put you together. You know, I think it was... Who the connection well, was. Again, this is fantastic with Diane being my manager because I, I was... Re- I don't remember anything. <laughs> <laughs> I signed with so many publishers. I was, uh, you know, one, I moved. Uh, Diane would, uh, was able to renegotiate my deal, uh, get us off of Jive Records and get us, uh, get me free from the record label. And, and then publishers were very interested in me because I'd had the hits. And so I would, I'm one of those veterans that's been really around the... Around the uh, all the publishers of that time, ne- yeah. nearly everybody I, I, I bumped into, I signed with at a certain point. And I think that sometimes with the publishers around that time, they'd say, who do you want to work with? You know, yes. And I'd say, you know, Prefab Sprout, The Blue Nile, Cocktoo Twins, and that band on TV, uh, Go West. Yeah. Um, and um, I think that's how it happened. I think a publisher called Diane and said, we can get Peter Cox to arrive, the lead singer of Go West, to your house. Uh, that's right. He, he was in town or he was coming here to write. That's that's right. what it was. He was coming here to write with some L.A. writers. That's right. And that's right. Um, and so that's how everybody would call you at that time. You know, yeah, it was a bit ridiculous. Wasn't yeah, it? yeah. So you were called probably um, through our publisher or their publisher called our publisher, etc. God, you're, you're making me remember these things yeah. now because Diane would say, do you want to work with this person or that person? I mean, I had the luxury and I mean, I was so full of myself and thinking that I was, you know, modders and in, 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 in first line sort of new technology. Uh, Diane said, Ringo is wants to work with you. And I said, <laughs> no, he's uh, 
It's gone, the Beatles. It's gone. And I've absolutely worshipped the Beatles. I couldn't believe it. I know. I mean, I can't believe it myself. You know, what, you know and then uh, Stephen Bishop, I've worked, I wanted to work with, and I did work with that, but I fought, fought, fought not to, because was, I was so, so trying to be with what was up front at that time. Yeah. And a lot of the artists which were having, struggling, um, I felt like I couldn't lift them up. Art Garfunkel came to yeah. my house, and yeah. I, I refused to do he that. He thought you might be the next. Paul Simon. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, for him. <laughs> and I'm six foot two and Paul Simon's three foot one. I just <laughs> could not get that. But we had a song called My Kindred Spirit, which he really believed yeah. in, didn't he? And then Steve Perry came to my house from Journey, yeah. who is the most amazing singer, such yeah. a lovely man. And um, I think I said to Diane, Diane's going, are you ready? You know, wouldn't do that. And I was like, no, I, I don't think he's going to have a hit album. I mean, what the hell was I thinking about? Yeah. Well, um, you were extremely... Uh, motivated and determined and you wanted to win the day always and you wanted everything to you know have a result so that you were just very uh, tunnel vision and you knew what you wanted and what it was going to take to yeah. Uh, make a difference. Well, the go, the go West lads were fantastic to work with yeah. and King of Wishful Thinking and Faithful. They turned into friends. Too. They turned into friends and it was a successful time. By then I'd moved into the valley in this house now um, yeah. where uh, I had a 16 track and we did those tracks. But I, just thinking about Go West because I loved R&B, I don't want to forget our connection to earth wind and fire oh yeah and maurice white i just thought thank goodness i'm looking at some notes here and saying i want to go back to a seminal period for me which was earth wind and fire and diane you basically um made this happen for me well i do remember standing at the complex uh you know right in sort of the lobby area because i at the time worked upstairs the the offices then were upstairs from the complex studios and um, so you'd you'd see, because also Maurice had an office as well up there, uh, uh, besides yeah. working in the studios yeah. when he was recording. Yeah. And uh, I just stopped there and was having a chat with him. Of course, I had a cassette. I was never without a cassette with Martin on it. <laughs> and um, I just talked to him about you. I remember having a nice chat. I always talked in a lower, softer voice with Maurice, because I felt like, you know, Spirit, he was a soft man. man. Yeah, and um, I just talked to him about you and thought I told him about the potential, I thought. And, um, you know, I don't remember the details, just the thrust of it. And he was just gracious enough to say, sure, you know, let me have the cassette. And uh, one thing led to another. And, of course, I was talking to Bob about it, yeah. uh, Bob Cavallo. And um, Bob was very close to Maurice. And uh, and then Bob sort of took over and, and took you to Maurice's or to somewhere where Maurice was to have a more formal Westlake Studios. Yeah. I remember that, you yeah. know, like like it was yesterday. But yeah. Diane, you know, s- said to me, you know, you uh, you planted can, the seed. Uh, well, you said we can go and you can go and meet Maurice and, yeah. and sell yourself, you know. And uh, I went to Westlake Studios. I, Bob Cavallo drove me in what was it, his sports car? What was that? A Porsche. Oh my which god! Which I used to drive. Now I'm seven foot eight, so lined horizontal in a Porsche being driven. <laughs> <laughs> to meet Maurice White <laughs> by the Mafia King is a, a totally new uh, circumstance. <laughs> I remember going into the Westlake, Westlake being so nervous because, and so excited because Earth, Wind and Fire I'd seen three times live. Diane had even, when Dancing in Heaven was out, she'd get, got me tickets to watch three weeks before to watch Earth, Wind and Fire perform. In and England. Th- in England at Wembley. And then three weeks later, I was sat there waiting for him to come in he was uh, uh, to meet me, and he was producing somebody there. We got on like a house on fire. 
I remember just sat there in, in this great big studio, uh, the a recording room with two chairs, and uh, making him laugh and uh, telling him how much I honoured Earth, Wind & Fire's music. He knew that I knew a lot about them because I'd grown up on their albums. And... Um, Again, he loved Diane, he liked Diane, and, he, and of course he, he knew that Diane had been pushing my songs, and he was a gentleman. Um, and he just said to me, go away and try and write a, a hit song for Earth, Wind & Fire. Uh, I've told this story before, but uh, he'd heard Dancing in Heaven, he even talks about it in, in the biography he wrote, and I think he was intrigued by the modern sound and the rhythm, um, although I don't think he loved Dancing in Heaven, he could see potential there in what we were brian and myself as musicians now brian had gone back to scotland at that time um for a break from all this but i stayed in la and i went and got an adre i went to adre's shop and bought a little tape machine eight track and went to diane's living room set it up uh hired a jupiter eight and in her living room over a period of two days after meeting maurice i wrote the song magnetic yeah um and I, and then and then <laughs> I got to say here I could not find the title of the song. You needed a that that that. Yeah, a that that that, which I use a lot in my songs. And I went, what is that going to be? You know, and I and went on, and the groove was great. The groove was. Yeah. I was going ah, to be ah ah ah. When I thought, what is that? Yeah. Gonna? And then one day Diane walked in and said, "Have you thought of a song called Magnetic?" And I went, uh, actually, it's even funnier than that. Tell me. <laughs> I I was looking for ah ah ah. <laughs> and I pulled out a dictionary. I was sitting on the couch, and you were in the other room. And uh, just looking in, through the dictionary, and all of a sudden I saw the word magnetic, and I said, what about magnetic? Yeah. And to my surprise, you said, that might work. Yeah, well, it was fantastic, really, yeah. because I had all the rhythm and I had all the melodies, but I couldn't know what this... And you, you write, I sometimes write choruses first, and I had this chorus... And the groove, I just thought, it has to be sharp. It has to be modern. And Diane came up with that title. And it was a bit one of those moments when you go, oh, my God, that's it. But I'm not going to pay you and I'm not going to credit you. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing I'm telling this story because, really, you should get some bloody credit for this. <laughs> um, but, um, uh, yeah, Magnetic with Diane inspiring that. And I wrote it in her living room, sent a cassette to Maurice and uh marie said this is great i think this could, we're going to cut this which just took my head off yeah i mean i can i can't remember too well but just the idea that he said we're going to cut this yeah, live i was so thrilled and i want you to come down the studio and help us record it my god so why don't we play the original demo that we made in Di i made in diane's living room um, in which she shouts out, Magnetic! And I say, that's great, let's use that. So here's the 8-track demo of Magnetic. Circuit excited. 
would. That was uh, great to hear. I must admit, I went right back into your living room. I could remember what it was like. You yeah, know? me too. I mean, I had a Jupiter 8 sat there. I, well, actually, I think it was on a couch. And we had a cassette player. I mean, you've got to think back in that time, your whole, your whole studio was what was a hi-fi. So I had, you know... Um, through a Fostex tape machine, I was mastering down to a cassette player. Yeah, yeah. Your studio was whatever you had. And that was, that was a cassette. Now, that, that also brings back memories because it was very important that your cassettes were perfect for me. And um, <laughs> TDK SAs, which meant they had a little... Absolutely. Remember those? Yes. I mean, I had to get those. That was like drugs. I had to get SAs, not, not just normal Ds. SA had brighter... And um, because I like crispness and air yeah. on the top, yeah. you'd record the cassette with Dolby in. Yeah. And then when it played back, Dolby was out, right? Was that what we did? Well, I can't remember the details now because it, it's very complicated trying to look back. But I, at the time, knew that wall of audio in the office so well. And well that, you, that's in the management office, right? In the management office. And I, of course, carried the same, same thing home. But um, you had me so well trained how that tape had to be. So that was very important <laughs> to me. <laughs> hey, I can't believe this. We're uh, looking up here both together at 63 minutes. So it's an hour already. And um, we've got so much more to talk about. Barely so, scratching the surface. Uh, uh, yeah, we're just starting. So um, I think we're going to have to do a, uh, uh, if I can lure you back again <laughs> with a nice cup of tea. And she's drinking a sparkling ice here. And I promise that you don't make any cassettes anymore. It's all on Pro Tools. So, yeah. so. But I think we've got to do another special it's fantastic isn't it i have i've had fun, fun, I took, fun I, I'm, I'm, it's making me remember things that i yeah. totally have forgotten and uh i must before we go now you're the same height that you were when i actually, first actually i'm you. a little shorter <laughs> <laughs> you know when when i met we'll finish on this when i knocked on the door and uh uh diane opened it i, I there's nobody there i looked down and I went, oh, oh there she is i was five feet and three quarters of an inch before now i'm only five feet and tall. you had to look up into the sky for Abs me i still do whenever we did all the uh ascap and award shows and everything they went like look at that large and little that great big tall man and that small little girl we were known for that yeah um and actually when we did meetings D uh, diane would say you need to look above above everybody's heads and spot people when we were at, when we were at parties or events martin would be like the up periscope and then i would be the one who would push <laughs> through the crowd underneath i'd say there's the man we got to talk to there's the one yeah. we got to get he's to the left he's on the north side by that window <laughs> and i'd see the crowd moving as diane pushed through navigate through the yeah. bottom of it the it was ground. like a serpent going through the swamp <laughs> she was going to get there anyway diane um lovely to have you here but i'm not going to pay you you know that's all right uh, you know i never gave you royalties for magnetic so you know what it's like i just keep doing the same yeah. thing okay i'll just keep taking it from your uh, commissioners <laughs> oh my god that's i haven't really checked that maybe she has <laughs> hey um will you come back i would love to all right that's uh miss poncha there diane poncha my manager and that's the end of um a first special we've done together thank you so much diane for coming along thank you sweetie for having me and thank you guys for joining us and uh, join me again in in the owl's nest <laughs>